Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. Antitrust legislation is moving forward in both bodies of Congress. This group of bills seeks to restructure how competition or antitrust law works in the United States. But the true effect is that these pieces of legislation are specifically targeted at big tech platforms. At the same time, the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission are also stepping up enforcement actions against big tech platform companies. Much less attention has been paid to how these bills reverse security and privacy tools that these tech companies build into their products and how these regulatory endeavors would impact consumers taking away the importance of security by design in favor of open access for every developer, good or bad. And in many of the convenience factors that these platforms provides may disappear. On today's Explain to Shane, I talked to two experts to discuss the underlying objectives of these bills along with how the bills are actually flawed mechanisms to address lawmakers' issues with big tech. My guest on this episode is Matt Perot and Blair Levin. Matt is a professor at the University of North Carolina School of Information and Library Science. He previously led the Center on Science and Technology Policy at Duke University and was a professor at Duke's Sanford School of Public Policy. Before that, Matt was a director of public policy at Facebook and the head of the global policy development team. Blair Levin is the policy advisor to New Street Research and a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institute. A telecommunications expert by practice, he previously served as the chief of staff to FCC Chairman Reed Hunt and directed the writing of the United States National Broadband Plan. Matt and Blair joined the podcast to walk us through these bills' many provisions, along with what they mean for consumers and the future of competition in technology industry. So Matt and Blair, welcome to Explain to Shane. Thank you for coming on today's show. And I recently read the announcement that Matt, you are joining Blair with a new segment to his uh, newsletter, the New Street Research. So you're going to be focusing on tech regulation. I'm excited for all of us about that, but especially since you'll be sharing your in-depth knowledge of the tech space and becoming more of an analyst beyond what you have been talking about in a long time in the Washington policy and legal circles. So Congratulations to the two of you. I think we're all going to be the better for it. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. I've, Blair and I have had kind of a long-running conversation on these issues, and now we get to take some of that conversation public, which I'm excited about. It'll go from the daily fraternization calls to like, oh, let's write about that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, well, actually, the, the trick of it, of course, is to take the great intellectual capital that Matt has and repurpose it for the sake of yeah, but what does it mean in terms of you buy or sell, uh, which is um, uh, provides a very interesting uh, twist to a lot of the stuff that we talk about in D.C. Right. Yeah. And sometimes we get to talk about it forever. And then sometimes like this this week, all of a sudden you're like, oh, I feel like the holidays happened. Everybody they gave us a two week break so everyone could get covid. And then <laughs> like, and they're like, all the button off, go back. And we're like right back to where we were in December talking about what we're going to highlight today, which are the competition and antitrust bills. I mean, it's all just right back in, into the game. So luckily, we've all been, we're, we're all practiced at this. But let's start with uh, Klobuchar, you know, having the discussion today and letting us know that she's noticed a, a January 27th markup on at least the Klobuchar Grassley bill. Some of the others are may, may make it onto the docket still. But, you know, can we just walk through why all of a sudden antitrust has become a very hot topic in Washington? And specifically, for those of us that were not as steeped in competition law, um, I think, Matt, this question is probably for you, but can you just give us the basics on the consumer welfare standard and why it's come into question? Yeah. So 
So the consumer welfare standard is the idea that when we think about antitrust analysis, when we look at when the government should intervene in the market and say that certain conduct is anti-competitive and, 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 and illegal, should be rooted in an analysis of consumer welfare. So are consumers, are consumers harmed? And there are lots of ways that um, <clears throat> courts and the government can do that analysis. The one that's gotten the most attention is a focus on prices. So um, is a dominant entity able to maintain um, artificially high anti-competitive prices? Um, but the Consumer Welfare Standard is actually broader than that. And it actually also includes harm to quality, harm to innovation. So um, is a monopolist able to release worse and worse products, less innovative products over time? And obviously, those kinds of situations where the position of an entity in the market result in consumer harm um, is, is something that we want the law to take an a, a account of. Um, the interesting recent development is um, pressure from a variety of different places um, on this idea, it basically saying it's insufficient, that it doesn't take into account other harms that companies might bring into the world, um, harms to labor markets, har harms to the environment, harms to society, democracy more generally. Um, and I understand why we want to be conscious of that range of harms, but I, it seems to me like the sort of narrowness of the focus of the consumer welfare standard and its objective economics-based orientation of the analysis is actually um, really helpful in a lot of ways. And rooting how we think about harm around consumers as opposed to harm to competitors. Like if Yelp is frustrated with Google, or Spotify is frustrated with Apple, it, instead of focusing on how competitors fare, but rather how consumers fare, are they getting better services? Are they paying more than they should? It, it seems to me like the right focus of the inquiry. Yeah, it, it, it seems like what you know what's now been dubbed big tech, my love, my, my tech companies, they all have unique reasons that they are very much kind of you know irritating our legislative bodies. And I'm also going to include, you know, even though we were mostly focused on um, the US, you know, we're seeing Europe with the DMA have definitely, you know, have a lot of these same agitations. But this, these proposals to me don't seem to resolve a lot of the things that people are pissed off about. They're they're kind of put them all into one big kind of stewy mess. And I, I'm not sure that at the end of the day, we're going to see the economy stronger and consumers better off. You could date the question, the consumer standard in a lot of different ways. But I think it's interesting to note that near the end of the Obama administration, the Council of Economic Advisors headed by a very sober economist, Jason Perman, put out a big report saying that there's too much, there's been too much concentration. Not just big tech, but concentration everywhere. I remember very distinctly a few months later, in February of 2017, reading a law review article written by a third-year law student um, entitled The Amazon Antitrust Paradox, um, which, of course, was written by the now head of the FTC, Lena Khan. I'm thinking, oh, poor Lena. She spent all this time writing this article. No one in the Trump administration is going to care about antitrust. Turns out I was quite wrong about that. But I think the reason I say that is there is a sense on both the left and the right about there's too much concentration, there's too much market dominance. But it absolutely breaks down when you talk about what to do about it. And that's where I think you're getting to, which is, whether you think there is too much or not, you have to be aware of if, if government intervenes in the market, that has consequences. Are they really the consequences that, that we want? 
Well, actually, we just did a podcast on supply chain management, and it, it's interesting when you layer that onto it. Um, and one thing I always say, I, I'm very fortunate. I have a sister who's been in the wine industry for a long time, and she says, you know, everybody thinks wine's sexy. She says, wine's really all about logistics. It's like, how many bottles can you get on the container in Italy at a price point that somebody in America will buy it, right? So, um, you know, now we're learning on a supply chain, all kinds of things that you are willing to pay or not pay for or wait for. Um, so that, you know, that point is interesting. But Blair, you've also pointed out uh, in the American Innovation and Choice Online Act, uh, which is a bipartisan bill, that it would outlaw what's called self-preferencing. Uh, the practice that a company who gives their product and service advantage over a competitive offering on another platform. And to me, it's interesting that we're looking at this only digitally. Like we're, we're not yelling at Walmart or Target. And, and candidly, from what I can see, consumers like it. I mean, it's anecdotal. I love it. <laughs> um, but is that, I mean, it, it, that's kind of what one example where I say this is like one thing that seems to be a, a burr under the saddle of, of many people. You can tell them watching Yellowstone. Um, but, you know, is is this going to help or is it going to, it seems like it has a way to significantly impact Amazon, Apple, and Google's operations towards their, their consumer base. But I'm not sure the consumers benefit. I think that's spot on. And I think where you started this conversation was that everyone is mad at tech, but they're mad at tech for different reasons. And they're mad at different companies for different reasons. And when you look at the non-discrimination bill um, that you're referencing, a lot of the momentum behind that, I think, is the result of the Francis Haugen disclosures and frustrations that people feel toward Facebook um, for a variety of different reasons. And the interesting thing about the bill is Facebook actually doesn't engage in a lot of self-preferencing. It doesn't have the same kinds of issues that, that Google had with its news product in Europe, for instance. It doesn't have like vertically integrated app stores and devices and services like Apple and Google do. And so, and it doesn't have name brand products like basics, for instance. Um, and so it doesn't have actually business model, a business model that would be disrupted. I don't, I don't think quite as much as Amazon and Apple and Google. Um, but it is, is the reason that this bill is moving, even though there'd be this just a lot of disruption to other products that I think would really, um, consumers would really feel. It's not, and I don't think it would be an abstraction. It would be more difficult to use Google Maps on an Android device. You might get an iPhone that has no Apple apps preloaded on it. And <clears throat> maybe those are things that are good for consumers in the long run. I, I think it's conceivable. Um, but there isn't really a clear articulation of the consumer harm in the status quo and how this legislation would be better for people. And I think it's actually more likely we'd see prices rise. We'd see uh, products that people really like, like being able to buy batteries on Amazon, no longer be able to do that. And so I, I'm not, I think, as you said, I don't, I don't know if this is going to um, uh, serve consumers well. well. Can I just say that one of the things that's interesting to me about the way legislation is written, it's often written with kind of historic metaphors in mind. And I think that fundamental principle of non-discrimination has worked very effectively in, in some other situations. When AT&T was a telephone monopoly, there were a lot of prohibitions on them discriminating that I think were very effective. Whether those are relevant for today's market, different question. I also think if you look at the cable, um, uh, the 92 Cable Act, there were two big provisions. One was price regulation, worst part of my existence of the FCC was trying to implement that. That didn't work so well. But the uh, the anti-discrimination, the program access rules did work well to enable the DBS industry to become a competitor. So I think you have to really do, you know, a, a pretty sophisticated analysis to see whether prohibiting a certain kind of discrimination would actually enable greater competition. 
Um, and I just don't know enough to know whether in this particular case, this kind of legislation would do that or would have uh, a negative effect of the kind of Matt is talking about. Yeah, as somebody is, I was an observant child. I grew up in an ILEC and I actually knew it. <laughs> Weird. I mean, like I knew that what my, my phone system was different than my grandmother's and then my next door neighbor actually owned the cable company. So it's like, as a small kid, I was like, these are so interesting. All these things that are going on now, you know, you try to talk to anybody who's, you know, birth date starts in a zero. Uh, they have no idea what we're talking about. Right, and you, right. you say like, we've already broken things up. You know, we've, we were, we remember the Judge Green days and, you know, looks like AT&T did a pretty good job of, you know, taking the bells back to what they are. But, you know, they have they have, they have new new issues, as you point out in your newsletter. Um, but one of the other things, uh, Matt, you, you commented on sort of like a bit of the you know, market position and possibly, I guess what I was hearing in my head was like acquisitions or mergers. When I, and when I think again, back to an older example, you know, Microsoft Word, even though I'm still pining for the days when you could see reveal code on WordPerfect because I could tell her <laughs> I've done something weird, uh, is that you know they didn't they didn't create spellcheck. They bought that company and they integrated it. And it's one of my favorite features, as uh, Bill Gates said, it was one of his favorite features too, because he's you know wasn't a great speller. But you know, it didn't it didn't make sense for them. They could they could have put an army of uh, engineers on it, but there was somebody who was doing a good job and they they brought it into the fold and I think so many of the companies that, you know, we, you and I, we all probably talk to that are in the startup phase, their exit plan is not to become this multi, you know, huge conglomerate company with lots of employees. They're looking to get acquired. So I find that part of some, you know, these pieces of the bills interesting too, where they're trying to slow that down. I don't see to what positive end. Uh, So I agree with you. I mean, so obviously there can be anti-competitive mergers and there's current law that exists that would enable the government to intervene when there are anti-competitive mergers. The, the general assumption that sort of based on rooted in economics is that there are lots of generally there are efficiencies to be gained from mergers. And so the government would only intervene when you can show that there's a substantial lessening of competition. And that's a high bar. And I think appropriately so, because most mergers are, are good for competition and good for consumers. Um, I had a really uh, uh, quite a revelation when I moved from Washington to North Carolina um, in the spring of 2018, because in Washington, mergers has become uh, it's become a dirty word. And I think the idea, the, the sort of idea behind it, is that you have powerful companies in Silicon Valley or New York who are who are merging together and forming these behemoths. And um, and that's actually not what mergers means in most most parts of the country. So now I live a 15 minute drive from Research Triangle Park. Research Triangle Park is a lot of uh, small businesses businesses and startups that are trying to get off the ground. As you said, their exit strategy, the exit strategy for most of them is to try to get acquired. And they're able to get venture capital dollars because of the prospect that they would get acquired at some point in the future. If you take some of the largest potential acquirers out of the market, even if you know that company down the road in RTP wasn't a, tar- a potential acquisition target for Google, just having Google in the acquisition market increases the potential price for an acquisition it, it 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 enables more venture capital to flow into the into the ecosystem and so i think you know the, the if we tighten merger uh, restrictions like the harm is not going to just be felt by the facebooks and googles it's going to be felt by a lot of startups that are trying to get off the ground in places like research triangle park i'm going to have a, a little bit of a counter because i want to do a counterfactual which is yeah it was perfectly fine for microsoft to get a spell check what if they had bought? What if the, the Google, uh, the uh, Microsoft of 1998, had bought Google? 
I don't think search would be as good, <laughs> but you know, obviously, I'm I'm just guessing here. On the other hand, I don't know how the Justice Department would have blocked them. Um, so you know, and and there's criticism of the government for allowing Facebook buying Instagram. I think if you go back in time when that deal was being uh, reviewed, there's no way no court would have upheld them blocking it. Um, but I do think that. It may be that you kind of, you know, what one of the beneficiaries of the IBM lawsuit of many years ago was they allowed Microsoft to rise up without essentially crushing it in the same way that the lawsuits against Microsoft may have allowed Google and Facebook and others to grow. There's a lot of historical debate about whether that's true. But I do think that there, you know, history may suggest that creating a kind of a more of an open zone where people are not getting acquired so quickly uh, might be good. And I think that, um, and, and, and Matt, I know you know a lot about this, you know, Facebook's strategy for entering the metaverse is probably an acquisition strategy. That is to say, when you look at the various technologies related to AR and VR, they're going to want to buy a bunch of stuff. But anybody who is producing that kind of technology is going to have, have to ask themselves, in this climate, is Facebook going to be allowed to buy us, or are we buying ourselves a two-year period of litigation purgatory? Uh, I, I and that may actually, that may be a good thing if people go in other directions. I think that's fair. I just think it's really hard to know ex-ante um, if the acquisition that's going to look really successful 10 years from now is going to succeed. I mean, Facebook's made lots of acquisitions that have failed. And I, and I think in, out, outside of the, this sort of immediate tech space, like a fascinating thing for me was watching the AT&T Time Warner acquisition, which was challenged by the Justice Department. Um, uh, the Justice Department lost. And at the, at the time, the allegation was, this is going to be, this is going to create dominance. You know, this is going to lessen competition over time. And then a couple of years later, the merger isn't successful and AT&T spinning out Time Warner. And so, um, I, I'm not saying that to say like, um, oh, clearly the Justice Department made a mistake, but more to emphasize like it's just really hard to know. I mean, I, I read the briefs in that case. I thought the government's, um, you know, arguments were, you know, they were they were compelling. You know, they put real there was real analysis behind those arguments. The the fact I think that from a business perspective, the merger turned out to be not successful just shows how difficult it is. To predict the future when you're when you're trying to assess is there really going to be a, a substantial lessening of competition or not? Well, one of the things that I'm fascinated with with the over the top, over the top. I mean, I feel like I someone to categorize them so I know how many I'm paying for is that they've taken the I love apps. I'm like, I just like, I get frustrated when I have, get back onto my old school computer because you're so used to being able to like you know get right to what you want with an application, which I never would have done with just straight up software, right? I mean, I never would have taken the time to like download the software, figure it all out. And, you know, so the the ease of use and how that migrated from, you know, our small screens and smaller screens to the big screen. And now, you know, when I go to my, I happen to have a Samsung, love it, beautiful TV. And I, you know, it's like adding the Peacock app over Christmas so I could watch Yellowstone because that was like my choice because my other guys didn't have it. And, you know, knowing that it's, it just fascinates me how that is where the, that's where the leap happened. And you, the, you see, I think, you know, that AT&T case was a lagging case where they were, you know, trying to play like catch up at a certain point and it just didn't make sense, which 
I feel like for some reason I have to bring up Hal Singer in the tennis channel. I don't even have a go on that, but it'll just make him so happy to know he was part of today's podcast. <laughs> but the other thing when we talk about apps, which I am concerned about with this legislation, is you know a lot of this is you know Matt, you know, I spent a lot of time in the the cybersecurity side, and you know Blair, that that was something that you, was always embedded in the telecommunications network because of its history, right? And right. so you know now. The idea of like slowly thinning the skin around all these things that we use and say, it's it's okay. No, it should be really permeable in, you know, like let everything kind of in and out and not have and have more of a sieve than a hard you know wall you have to get around. Um, I have a real concern about that. I think we've seen, you know, Europe gives it lip service, but Europe is also doing what we're doing here in the United States is we're giving security lip service to a certain crowd. And then we turn around and say that we want to do, you know, what's called side loading, which is like let anything on to the device, which is really, uh, I think that's very challenging to the security ecosystem. And I have yet to find a way to bridge those two groups that really want to talk to each other. I mean, it's a, it's a big cybersecurity problem in general, but especially when we talk about, you know, just kind of pulling back on all the security levers that we've learned from our computers and made our smartphones smarter. I think it's a great point. And, and it's one that we're going to be dealing with over the next couple of decades, there is no single solution. We aren't going to have a day of victory. But I'll just make two observations about it. Number one, um, we really want there to be a lot of interoperability, but interoperability always raises a lot of security questions. It raised it with the AT&T network. Sometimes it's a fake defense <laughs> for, for as, as AT&T tried to use it, and sometimes it's quite real. But there's also a point that with the amount of cyber attacks and ransomware and others, it's harder and harder for small companies. I mean, the Googles and the Facebooks and the Amazons, they have great walls and fortresses, but I've been talking to a bunch of kind of smaller entities who are basically saying, I know the people in Washington want to make sure that the landscape is not only about the four big tech companies or the five, depending on how you define it, um, but in order for us to be secure, we kind of have to get inside the castle, one of them or the other, and then we're beholden to them. And that's going to have a long-term impact on competition unless there's a national strategy to help smaller companies address the cybersecurity um, uh, attacks, which are increasing in number and very expensive. You know, using your same castle column boat, you know, ideas like, you know, I'm, I'm happen to be an Apple user and I, I am a crazy app adopter. I mean, everyone's want to go back and clean them out. So I don't even know why I've chosen some of them because I read Wired magazine probably, but um, you know, I appreciate that I, in theory, am in behind, you know, a, they've, they've done the first round of checks for me and I meant to have a prop today, but I forgot. I don't know where it is. I've already bought it and forgotten where it is. Um, I, I'm not allowed to buy things on Instagram between midnight and 6 a.m., but occasionally it happens. And so I bought a, a label maker, which I've never needed in my entire life, but somehow it made sense. I just was like, sure, of course, I need that. So my label maker shows up the other day, and the first thing it tells me to do is download an app. So I'm like, all right, cool, because it's wireless and you know, it's Bluetooth enabled. And the app immediately says that I need a firmware update. And then I start to question the whole thing. And then I turn it around and, and it's made in Wuhan. And I'm just like, I'm going to set the label maker aside for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a lot of questions about what's going on right here. I'm not even sure I needed this thing. I can't return it because there's no return. But it wants, why does it need to put firmware on my phone? You know, I mean, it's and the average bear is not asking those questions. They'd be making labels like crazy right now. Uh, you know, where I kind of paused and thought, 
Maybe I'll do that on another phone and see how that all works out. Um, so I know another thing that you guys mentioned in your most recent newsletter is, is some actually some FTC news. What's going on with your, with with Amazon and, and AWS? Any thoughts you have? You want to talk about that? Well, I, I, I'm not sure there actually is any news, <laughs> which is simply to say the Trump administration started an investigation of AWS. Um, obviously, they're a very powerful um, uh, provider of cloud services. Uh, it would be quite surprising if the FTC, under the leadership of Lena Khan, would not continue that investigation. Um, but but that and, and but but news broke that. They're investigating. It, it was odd to me. I mean, you know, being the way I am, I look at it and say, who who wanted this story to run? Who called up a reporter and said this? It's not exactly clear to me. There was no news in it. It wasn't like there was a smoking gun. You know, maybe some competitors are trying to accelerate it and putting pressure on them to bring it to some kind of resolution. I, I don't know. But, you know, the the, the, the fact that there is a investigation by the FTC of AWS should not surprise anyone who has been uh, watching what's going on in Washington. Um, and as Matt pointed out to me, one of the stories listed like four of the uh, competitors, <laughs> the AWS in the headlines, that suggested maybe a problem with an antitrust case. But the other thing that's interesting is like, if you in some way impede AWS who exactly is the beneficiary? Is it Google? <laughs> you know, is it Microsoft? These are not exactly the parties that Lena Khan, I think, wants to help. Well, and we saw that with the, you know, anybody who followed the Jedi case with DOD is it was it was just big tech on big tech fight. <laughs> and and then you're always like, why is Oracle behind all of this somehow? <laughs> Very sneakily stay in the background, but they're the ones that are like making sure that other people are throwing punches at each other. They're brilliant at it. Uh, yeah, I think I think as Blair said when I was looking up, trying trying to learn more about the see, see more of the news on this. The first article I pulled up said FTC examines potential AWS competition issues, and then the subheadline below it is Amazon's cloud unit has the most market share, followed by Microsoft Azure and followed by Google Cloud. Other major cloud infrastructure providers include Oracle and IBM. So that starts to sound like a fairly competitive market. I mean, I don't I don't think that means. Um, the FTC wouldn't bring a case, or if it brings a case, it could be successful. But it, you know, even just the way that reporters are reporting on it suggests it's a difficult case. I, I think it also shows something that I think um, is really important. That's been part of the conversation that Blair and I have had over a period of time is that it shows there are real incentives um, on the on on the part of regulators to to keep looking at certain issues where they've staked their political reputation. And so, as Blair said, Lena Khan wrote extensively about Amazon before she was at the FTC, and so I think. Um, has strong incentives to show that now that she's in a position to actually bring some of her academic writing to in the, the enforcement reality, um, that she does that. And I think that means we'll see continued FTC, um, examination of, of Amazon. But I also think, um, there's going to be scrutiny from the Justice Department and the FTC of all the big tech companies. Yeah. I, I also, I, you know, when somebody says, what's the cloud? I'm like, it's just someone else's computer. I mean, it's not, not super complicated, but it, you know, compute for a long time was seemed relatively cheap compared to the other things we were asking, you know, these devices to do. And so it was like, you, you remember like, and I'm going to use Google's like early on Google's like, just bring it, throw it and we'll take care of it for you, put it in the file. And now I feel like they've even gotten to a stage where they're like, 
could you th- go through your files and decide what you really want to keep? Because, you know, the problem is now, and it's a, it's a combination of like data bloat because you can't, everybody's holding on to stuff. So there was a point where this whole thing like mushroomed up because it was cheap and you could just, you didn't have to make decisions. You just kept everything. And I think now we're sort of getting to a stage where they either need to, some of them need to change their models um, more, but, you know, I'm just a consumer. I'm not, you know, an enterprise version of it, but, you know, like how they're modeling that and how much information and where they're, you know, they're putting these structures. And then you know, it's interesting because we're seeing now an environmental element that people are starting to watch on this too. Um, and, you know, that's one thing crypto's brought into more into focus is just like, you know, how much compute power it takes. It's not, free you know it does have a, a cost benefit to it and so there's economy of the scale you have security issues around it so you do want to be with somebody who's like really secure but you know amazon basically just figured out they were going to need a lot of it so it was like building a warehouse you know if i was going to build a warehouse for my stuff you might as well build it for my other stuff they almost took their logistics lesson brought it into the cloud and then you know microsoft was sort of a catch-up on that but they caught up quickly so it's going to be really interesting to see how that ftc case goes forward and what what are the levers I think we, we may get an indication of the way the FTC is thinking next month when the FTC, I think, has to decide whether to bring a complaint against the Amazon MGM deal. Now, under any kind of traditional analysis of defining a product market and a geographic market and whether this would tend to create con, you know, uh, consolidation and, and, and hurt competition in the market, it's pretty hard to see how Amazon buying MGM would hurt. MGM is not, I think they're number five, but there's so much, so many bigger players in the movie production business. Um, but in when when Amazon was buying Whole Foods, um, uh, Khan penned an op-ed for the New York Times providing a completely different theory that relates to data. Um, and it'll be interesting to see whether she applies that to this deal, but also, of course, whether she has the votes of the commission to bring it and whether a court would would uphold it. But that's the kind of thing that could really shift things if successful. Or it could say, it, it could signal, look, yeah, we're going to continue to investigate big tech, but they're not completely banned from doing any deals. So I think that's a really important um, a one to watch. So um, you guys in the mood for a little political handicapping? Because I think what gets interesting now is we're beginning of an election year. We all know that if you work on actual policy, it's got to basically get the heart of it done first quarter because you got to be voting on it by, let's say, before the 4th of July recess and because nothing else is going to happen and they're going to pivot to what constituents want to talk about. So there's kind of a lot of interest in some of these bills, which seem to be interesting almost from a more from a primary perspective of what you know your heart and soul of your your, your party be it rd is looking at is going to shift come july so i think that's one of the reasons why we're starting to see the klobuchar bill move um more heat on the house to maybe get something to the floor which you know Pelosi's not going to do that unless she thinks she have the vote so um and heather told you what i think about it what, what are you guys thinking i think it's incredibly hard um to predict i mean the when the house bills made it out of committee, which I think was like roughly a year ago or so, you know, it seemed, it felt like there was a lot of momentum and I would have thought like given the kind of composition of the house, like that after they come out of committee, they would have hit the floor and they still haven't. And, um, it, I I don't know if that will happen with the Senate bills. It seems like, you know, from various people I've talked to that they think that there, some people have said there's more than a 50% likelihood they're passed. That, That feels high to me and it feels high for a bunch of reasons. 
I think the main one is what we talked about at the outset, which is I don't think this is going to be, I think that their consumers are going to struggle if this legislation becomes law. And so if let's say, let's say it's passed in the next few months, I think there's going to be a major um, consumer backlash against it because this isn't an abstraction. This isn't tinkering with some liability, some liability component of section 230 or something that affects some communities, but doesn't really affect many users online. This is like, this is going to change how products feel, um, how your phone feels in your hand and the options that you have when you try to buy products on Amazon. And, um, and I think companies are going to make that very apparent because that's their, I think that's their strongest defense. They will make, if this is really coming close to passage, I think they will make it very apparent in their products about why they're delivering a worse product for users. And so I think that means that, you know, that people who stand behind the bills would be entering a midterm season with a lot of pressure coming, you know, backlash from consumers around the consequences of this. And, and so, so I think it doesn't really work as governance, as a governance strategy, because I think the bills are going to, are, are really going to affect consumers' lives in ways that they don't like, but it's very good politics. It's good. It makes for good tweets, makes for good fundraising. It riles up the base. And so it seems to me like, the ideal outcome is that it moves through committee and doesn't really come to a vote on the floor. And uh, members of Congress can keep talking about how the powerful lobbying teams at the various companies are stopping this from moving forward. But I think that's actually probably the right outcome for members of Congress. Yeah. I, I'd agree with that assessment. It's, it's always easier to predict and more accurate to predict that nothing happens because uh, that's often uh, the way it works. And I would just add to Matt's comments that, you know, in 92, the Cable Act passed um, by with a um, two-thirds majority in both the House and the Senate. Gore came off the campaign trail to cast the deciding vote. President Bush had negotiated, had said he would veto it as long as it was the cable industry didn't try to change it, so it was as bad a bill as possible. But it was very popular when it passed, and when we started implementing some of the provisions, it became very unpopular. And and I'm, I I don't think that's necessarily the way we did it. I think that you know industry is very good at painting things in certain kinds of directions. So I think there's a similar dynamic where um, people like to see people in Washington fighting for them against big corporations. They also have a sense that kind of like. But they don't mean their 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 corporation. I mean, I think people really truly love Amazon Prime. Um, people think Google Maps works really really well. But it's very much like people really hate Congress, but like their own members. So it's there's a curious dynamic to it that I think leads to the kind of situation Matt's talking about, where it's really good politics in the short term, but not necessarily if it passes. I think that's. I'm curious. I think you guys are pretty, probably pretty close on those predictions. Well, I want to thank you for your time today. I wish you lots of luck with your your new uh, entity and the two of your brains together. I think we're all going to benefit from it. So stay in touch and thank you for being guests on Explain to Shane. Today. Thank you. Great thank to you. see you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.